grab your Bible, if you would, and open with me to Psalm chapter 25, Psalm chapter 25. If you are using one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you, it's going to be on page 459, 459. Over the last five years or so, one of the great joys in ministry has been to be able to go to the tiny Micronesian island of Yap and partner with the church in Yap for gospel-centered ministry. I'm grateful to Lance Alana Ferguson for connecting us with this church in Yap and their pastor, Pastor Petrus, and uh, we are always amazed. I am always so challenged and encouraged and convicted and inspired anytime I spend time with these brothers and sisters in the faith just watching their confidence in the Lord, watching their quiet resolve to be faithful to Christ. In fact, um, I'm uniquely challenged by Pastor Petrus as I see this man who has received no formal seminary education, no formal Bible college training, uh, shepherd the flock selflessly and courageously and faithfully and open God's word and counsel his word privately and proclaim his word publicly. It's, it is such an incredible blessing. But of all of the cultural differences that exist between us and these brothers and sisters in the faith 9,000 miles away, one striking difference is the way we define the word Wait. Most often, when we think of the word wait, we think perhaps of pausing for a moment or two so that our young child can catch up to us in the aisle at Target. We generally, as North Americans, hate to wait. And in fact, we do everything we can to avoid waiting, whether it's taking advantage of call-ahead seating or by ordering things through Prime so that our package ordered just now can arrive in approximately 17 minutes. We hate to wait. In fact, one of the worst places on earth for a North American is the waiting room, especially if they don't have ESPN. But our brothers and sisters in Yap view waiting differently. I remember several, two years ago having a conversation with a, a sister in the faith, and uh, we had just enjoyed a meal together with our group. We were on the back porch of, of, of a home, and, uh, and I discovered that this lady was not actually from the island of Yap. She was from one of the outer islands, several, several hundred miles away. And I asked her, then, okay, when are you headed back home? And she said, well, I had planned to take the boat that was here last week, um, but it didn't work out, and so I'll just take probably the next boat that comes. To which I, I probably didn't look at my watch, but I'm trying to think, okay, today's date is what? Last week's boat, wh when is the next boat? To which she replied, oh, probably two or three months. We don't know how to wait like that. And yet she was perfectly satisfied, perfectly contented to wait. In fact, I'm sure as Lance can vouch as a missionary 
Pilate on Yap at one time when folks would miss the plane because there were too many seats, and, or not enough seats, too many people, and they would get there and find out, oh, we don't have enough room for you. You'll have to take next week's flight. Their typical response was, okay, I don't know how to wait like that. But waiting, did you know waiting is a necessary part of the Christian life? Our brothers and sisters in the faith waited for the arrival of Christ. We, as Christians in the New Covenant era, wait for the return of Christ. And in the meantime, we so often wait for God's promises to be answered, for, God's, for our prayers to be answered, for things to work out. And we wait and we wait and we wait. Waiting happens when there is a gap between what we are able to control and the realities around us. For example, if we had perfect control, if we were completely sovereign, we would never need to wait. We could make things happen when we wanted them to happen, how we wanted them to happen, when we wanted them to happen, but we are not in control of all things. And so, we wait. We wait sometimes. We wait for loved ones to trust Christ. We wait for past hurts to heal. We wait for healing to come. We wait for a prodigal child to come home. We wait for our marriage to be restored. We wait for a doctor to find the problem. We wait for the ridicule or the bullying to stop. We wait for a husband or for a wife. We wait for God to bless us with children. Perhaps we wait for our children to leave home one day. Psalm 25 is a psalm of one who is waiting. In fact, if you're looking at the text in front of you, you can see in the superscript that this is a psalm of David, the king of Israel. The title of the psalm, which is not a part of the original inspired text, but was added much later by the translators, might say in your Bible, teach me your paths. But I want to offer an alternative title this morning, and that is this, Waiting on Yahweh. So follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord says this, of David, to you, O Yahweh, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be put to shame who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Yahweh. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Yahweh. 
and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Yahweh. Good and upright is Yahweh. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of Yahweh are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your namesake, O Yahweh, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears Yahweh? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of Yahweh is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever towards Yahweh, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. If you're taking notes this morning, this is going to be our outline. We're going to look at five observations about Psalm 25, five observations about Psalm 25, and then we're going to look at four themes of Psalm 25. So five observations about Psalm 25, and then four themes of Psalm 25. Let's begin with the observations. First, and obviously, hopefully, this psalm was written amid trials and affliction. So we don't know what the affliction is, but we know that David is under considerable strain as he writes. Just listen to some of his words. Verse 1, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Verse 2, O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Verse 5, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation For you I wait all the day long. Verses 15 through 21, my eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me, be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble. Forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes. And what, with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not to be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. 
So this psalm is written amid trials and affliction. All is not well with David, and he doesn't hold it in. In fact, David pours out his heart to Yahweh, which leads us to our second observation, which is this is a prayer, or this psalm is a prayer to Yahweh for help. This psalm is a prayer to Yahweh for help. We can see this clearly in verse 1. To you, O Yahweh, I lift up my soul. So the psalmist, David, is bringing his soul to Yahweh. He's saying, Yahweh, God, listen to my soul. I'm bringing the, the needs, the concerns, the weight, the care of my soul to you. If you're reading in the CSB translation, you can see that it says, Yahweh, I appeal to you. So things are not good in David's life, but David does not try to hide from God. He doesn't play games with God. He doesn't try to act as though everything were okay. But here, David lays bare his cry to God for help and for deliverance. And David does so expecting God to act. In fact, Ian, one of our interns, helped me to see this week that in this psalm, there are seven actions of David, seven things that David does. Do you know how many things there are that Yahweh does in this text? There are 26 actions of Yahweh. In other words, there are almost four times as many actions of God referenced here than actions of David. So for example, here are the actions of the psalmist, the actions of David. He lifts up his soul, he trusts in God, he waits for the Lord, he fears the Lord, he keeps God's covenant and testimonies, he keeps his eyes towards the Lord, and he takes refuge in the Lord. So seven actions. But listen to the actions of Yahweh, or the things that the psalmist knows that Yahweh can do. Yahweh prevents shame and the victory of the enemy for those who trust in him. Yahweh brings shame on the treacherous. Yahweh makes his ways known. Yahweh teaches his paths. Yahweh leads in the truth. Yahweh remembers mercy in steadfast love. Yahweh forgets sin in transgressions. Yahweh instructs sinners in the way. Yahweh leads the humble. Yahweh teaches the humble. Yahweh pardons guilt. Yahweh instructs those who fear him in the way they should go. Yahweh makes those who fear him abide in well-being. Yahweh makes their offspring inherit the land. Yahweh makes his covenant known. Yahweh plucks the feet of his people from the net. Yahweh turns and faces those who are lonely and afflicted. Yahweh is gracious to those who are lonely and afflicted. Yahweh brings those who are troubled out of their distress. Yahweh considers the affliction and the trouble of his own. Yahweh forgives sin. Yahweh considers the foes of his children. Yahweh considers the violent hatred against his children. Yahweh guards the soul of his own. Yahweh delivers his own. 
Yahweh prevents the shame of his own. And Yahweh redeems his own people out of their trouble. So it seems to me that the message here is clear that this prayer is calling God to act and to help according to his character and according to his promises. This is all about Yahweh's power to act even as David waits. Which means, and this is our third observation, that this psalm is rooted in the attributes of Yahweh. So David is not simply hoping that Yahweh hears his prayers. He knows that Yahweh not only hears, but he knows that Yahweh will respond. To which we should say, well, how does David know that? How does David know that Yahweh hears his prayer and that Yahweh will respond? Answer, because David knows the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. These are the books that, of the Bible that would have been available to David at that time. And David has so studied the Bible that he knows who God is, that he knows how God has worked in the past, and he knows what God's promises are for those who love him. So David's prayer for help as he waits on Yahweh is not a blind leap of faith. Not at all. It's a prayer that's rooted confidently in knowing who God is, in knowing how God has worked in the past, and in knowing what the promises are that God has made to those who love him. And I would argue, friends, that even as we wait on the Lord, whether it be for deliverance from our struggles and trials, or whether it be on the ultimate deliverance to come when Jesus returns in glory, Our waiting is also rooted in knowing who God is from his word, in knowing what he has done, how he has rescued his own, how he has provided the Messiah, and in knowing what his promises to us are. I mean, just look at the reasons that David gives for why Yahweh should answer his prayer. So David gives reasons for why Yahweh should answer his prayer. These kind of tip David's hand to hit the confidence that he has in Yahweh. Look at verse 5. David knows that Yahweh will answer his prayer because God is the God of his salvation. Look at verse 6. He knows Yahweh will answer his prayer because of God's character and because of God's actions in the past. Verse 7. David knows that Yahweh will answer his prayer because of Yahweh's reputation and his character. We see that again in verse 8. In verse 11, David knows that God will answer his prayer. Even though his sin is great, he knows that for the glory of Yahweh's name, he will act in mercy towards David. In verse 16, David knows, Yahweh, you will hear my prayer because I am lonely and afflicted, and I know that you have promised to answer the prayers of those who are lonely and afflicted. In verse 20, David knows that Yahweh will answer his prayer because David is taking refuge in him. And in verse 21, David knows that Yahweh will answer his prayer because David waits on the Lord. 
It's almost as though his strength is renewed as he waits on the Lord. Almost as though he is able to run and not grow weary and walk and not grow faint. Even as he waits on the deliverance of Yahweh. And that's because David's faith in God, that God hears him, that God cares for him, once again, is not a blind leap of faith. But rather, it's rooted in evidence that God has worked this way in the past, that God has communicated this to be his character, that God has made these promises to his people, therefore, this is how God will act. I will not be put to shame because God will be true to his word. And David does not believe that God owes him something. Rather, David is just asking God to act according to his character. Two more observations to make about this psalm. This psalm is an acrostic, which means that each stanza or each, uh, each verse in this psalm begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. All except verse 22 is... Galen, who did announcements this morning, pointed out to me this week, in verse 22, that is the only verse that is outside of the acrostic. And so it seems to me that verse 22 is the context or the theme or the focal point for this entire psalm. That when David prays and asks to be, to be rescued, when David prays and asks to be relieved of his suffering, as David prays to God and says, God, I'm waiting on you. The ultimate rescue he has in mind is not just a a short, quick kind of relief from his temporary suffering, but rather is the promised Messiah to come who would redeem Israel out of all her suffering. It's a prayer for the Redeemer to come even as Israel Waits And David prays this prayer representing all of Israel as the anointed one of Israel. Which brings us then to our last observation about this psalm. And that's this. This psalm calls for deliverance through the king of glory. This psalm calls for deliverance. This is a call to rescue. Not just to have pain go away or trials go away or ridicule to go away, but ultimately for deliverance to come through the King of glory. Now you might be looking at Psalm 25 and thinking, well, wait a minute, I don't see anything about the King of glory in Psalm 25. We actually saw the King of glory last week in Psalm 24. But it seems to me that Psalm 25 builds on the momentum of Psalm 24, that as God inspired the writings of these psalms and inspired, inspired the, the collection of these psalms, it's no mistake that Psalm 25 follows Psalm 24. As we saw last week in Psalm 24, it's a, it's a call for the gates to be flung open wide and the doors to be flung open wide so that the King of glory might enter. And we looked last week and discovered that the king of glory is a reference not only to God the Father, but also God the Son, the Messiah, who was for David to come and who is for us the one who has arrived. And 
In the same way, in Psalm 25, even amidst suffering, even amidst trials, even in the waiting, David cries out and prays to Yahweh, Yahweh, would you send your Redeemer? Would you redeem Israel from all her struggles? Now, these are just observations we have made about the text. So let's look at four specific themes from Psalm 25. So rather than working kind of chronologically or, or line by line kind of through the text, I want to just highlight four themes that we see from Psalm 25. There are more themes than the ones we'll cover, and we're not going to cover all four of these in equal measure. But here are four themes that we see here in Psalm 25. First is obviously waiting for the salvation of Yahweh, waiting for the salvation of Yahweh. So throughout this psalm, we hear David waiting for the Lord. In verse 5, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. And then in verses 14 and 15, David again is waiting for the salvation of the Lord. And then again in verses 21 and 22, may integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I, what? What's that word there in verse 21? For I, all right, we'll try that again. We'll take another run at it. Verse 21, may integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait. For you, yes. So several different times, David reminds the Lord, Lord, I'm waiting for you. I'm waiting on your salvation. And friends, this is a reminder that waiting on the Lord is not meant to be passive. It's meant to be prayerful. You might be waiting on the salvation of a loved one, or waiting on physical healing, or waiting on a restored relationship, or waiting on a job, or a child, or a spouse, or waiting for the dark night of the soul to lift. But waiting is not a time for idleness. It's a time for prayerfulness. And David models that for us, even most of all as we, his children, wait for the return of King Jesus. So we wait, and we delight on the word as we sang this morning, I will wait for you, I will wait for you, on your word I will delight, right? We reflect on the good promises of God, even as David prays, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, O my God, in you I trust, let me not be put to shame, let not my enemies exalt over you, over me. In fact, you can hear how this cry of David in verse 2 is really an echo of Psalm chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, which reads, but, oh, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, the glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. So David lifts up his soul to the Lord. Here in Psalm 25, the psalm we're looking at, he cries to the Lord because he knows the truth of Psalm 23, that the Lord is the glory and the lifter of his head, that the Lord is a shield around him, that he can cry out to the Lord and the Lord hears from his holy hill. 
And so David is able to express this absolute trust in the Lord even as he cries out for help. God, you will hear me. You will not put me to shame. Which brings us to our second theme we see in the text. And that is this. As I wait on Yahweh, let me not be put to shame. So this is something that comes up over and over again in the text. As I wait on Yahweh, as I wait on the Lord, let me not be put to shame. Verse 2, O God, in you I trust, let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, verse 3, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Verse 20, O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for in you I take refuge. What is shame? Well, the Hebrew word carries some elements of our English word embarrassment, or it's extreme embarrassment. It's finding out that we were wrong, or we were not competent enough, or we couldn't make it. And so we could say this morning that the psalmist says, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. We could also say, none who wait for you will be embarrassed. Think about that. As I wait on the promises of the Lord, which are all of his promises to me, but ultimately and chiefly his promise to return, to bring me safely home, to bring heaven to earth, and to establish the new heaven and new earth where I will live forever in his presence. As I wait for that day, I know that I will not be put to shame. I will not be embarrassed on that day. Compare that, or yeah, compare that to the Old Testament person of Noah. Remember Noah in the Old Testament? God came to Noah and told him that he was about to flood the earth, but by God's gracious provision, he elected to save Noah. And so he told Noah to build an ark, to build a boat, and the boat would be the the means by which his family would be saved from the judgment of God. And Noah built the ark. Do you know how long it took Noah to build the ark? We're not exactly sure, but it was over 40 years. Over 40 years on one project to build an ark. Many of us in this room are not even 40 years old. Our entire life and beyond to build an ark in faithfulness to the Lord. And I have to wonder how many times as he was building the ark, as he was walking out morning by morning, hammer and saw in hand, did his neighbors say, this is ridiculous, Noah. Like, this is absolutely ludicrous. Like, there is, rain has never fallen from the sky. We have no context for this thing, this flood thing you're talking about. Like, why in the world? This is a colossal waste of time, Noah. Can you imagine the shaming that was directed towards Noah? The potential for embarrassment that Noah likely may have had 
And yet Noah continued to trust in the Lord. We might imagine Noah praying to God, God, you have told me, your word told me to do this. I've given myself to this mission to act in this way, but man, it has sure been a long time, Yahweh. Maybe morning by morning, Noah goes outside and opens the tent flap and steps out into the sunlight, just longing to see at least a cloud on the horizon. God, I have no idea how you're going to do this. I have no idea what's going to happen, except you've told me to build this ark, and you've told me that the flood is coming, and I don't even really know what all of this means, but I'm going to follow, and I'm going to be faithful. Hebrews 11 reminds us, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and all those who would seek to shame him and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And that's the definition of faith, friends. The confidence that we will not be put to shame. That God's ways and his purposes are beyond our ability to comprehend them in their entirety. And so we live as Christians and we wait on God, but we wait in the confidence that we will not be put to shame. That in the end, God will be good to his word and good to his promises. And for Noah, God was good to his word and good to his promises. In the day of judgment, in the day when the rain came and the floods came, David was, or Noah was not ashamed. Because God's promises were true. And that embodies the lives of those who are blessed by God, those who are faithful, who pray and who rest confidently knowing we will not be put to shame. Cameron Clark, one of our interns, helpfully pointed out this connection between Psalm 25 and Psalm 1. So in Psalm 1, you have the two lives who are, that are contrasted. You have the, the life of the man who is blessed, and you have the life of the man who is wicked. The blessed man delights in the law of the Lord. He delights in Scripture. He meditates on it day and night. And in the end... While the wicked man is judged and driven away, the blessed man is known by God. He is brought safely into the eternal presence of God. He is not put to shame. And I pray that we would follow David's example here. Because the deliverance that David longed for has come. But we still wait for the fulfillment of all of God's promises when Jesus Christ returns. And I pray that we will walk confidently in the promises of God. You see, this is a valid prayer. Psalm 25 is a valid prayer for Christians today who are waiting on God. It's valid for us as well. Every time suffering forces us to reach beyond the temporary remedies of this world and cling to the eternal promises of God. Let me say that again. Psalm 25 is a valid prayer for Christians today. It's valid every time 
our suffering in this world forces us to reach beyond the temporary remedies of this world that we might cling to the eternal promises of God. And when the doctor says, you know, it's at best 50-50, or when the relationship seems shattered beyond recognition, or when you long to be married, but you're 28 or 33 or 47 and still not married, or you long to have children, yet God has not yet blessed you with children, or when life's trials seem too hard to bear, or when God seems distant and the darkness does not quickly lift. It is precisely a time for Psalm 25. And that does not mean that this is a magic prayer. Because God never promised us healthy bodies. He never promised us smooth relationships. He never promised us a spouse or children. But he did promise to provide everything we need for life and godliness. He did promise our salvation for those who trust in him. He did promise our eternal reward and joy for those who are united with Christ. He did promise to never leave or forsake his own. He did promise that in the end, our confidence in him will never be put to shame. Which means we will never get to the end of our lives and after spending our lives trusting him, say, you know what? That was a waste. It actually was not worth it. In fact, I really missed out all those years I spent trusting in the Lord. We never have to worry about that happening because we will never be put to shame. We will never get to the end of our life and say those trials were for nothing. Those storms were pointless. We may not even know the meaning or the reasons behind all of the storms that the Lord allowed to come our way. But we do know, according to God's word, that we will never be put to shame. We'll never say, I shouldn't have done that. And friends, this is the truth that makes the difference as we wait. Because waiting does not have to be wasted. In fact, even David models for us the work of Yahweh even as he waits for Yahweh to fulfill his promises. Which brings us to our third theme. The third theme is this. As I wait, remember me, but not my sin. Three different places this theme comes up in Psalm 25. Even as I wait, remember me, David prays, but not my sin. We see this in verses 6 and 7. We see it in verse 11. We see it in verses 16 through 18. One author wrote, temporary affliction often reminds us of our sin and our need for forgiveness. And this is what you see David doing here. Part of his confidence in the Lord is knowing that he can trust in the character of Yahweh. Knowing that Yahweh is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for those who fear him. So even as David waits on the Lord, he is reminded of his own sin. And he confesses that sin 
while remembering the mercy of Yahweh. I mean, what is it about waiting that reminds us of our own frailty and usually brings to the surface our own sin? I mean, waiting has a way, even if it's just for five minutes, even if it's just a red light when we're running late, sitting there, and now we, we sin by being anxious. We sin by being angry over the person that cut us off in traffic, that put us behind the red light, and they just got through as the light changed. Or we fret and we fear about what if this happens, or what if that happens, or what if this doesn't happen. Waiting has a way of bringing to the surface our sin, that we might confess our sin to a grace-filled God. Remember me, David prays, but not my sin. So our waiting on the Lord does not have to be wasted because it is a time to remember our sin and a time to remember the Lord's mercy. There is always a point in our waiting. Which leads us us to our last theme this morning, and that is this. As I wait... Teach me your truth, or as I wait, lead me in your truth. Verse 4, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. We tend to learn really well when we, when we come face-to-face with our limits. Like when we reach the end of our rope, when we've done all that we can and it's not enough, we tend to learn really well in those moments. And waiting has a way of taking us to those limits. And David here is uniquely positioned to learn from Yahweh because of his suffering. He's reminded of his own inability to fix his situation. He's reminded of his own inability to to provide the Messiah that he so longs for. And so he trusts in Yahweh and he prays to the Lord, Lord, even now as I wait, help me to trust you more. Teach me your ways. Lead me in your truth even as I wait for your promises to be fulfilled. What are the benefits of the Lord leading us in his truth even as we wait on him? For us today, it is Jesus. Jesus is the benefit. Look at verse 13. This is one of the benefits. His soul shall abide in well-being. There's a confident rest for the Christian even amid waiting. And his offspring shall inherit the land. The land there, I'm I'm with Micah, one of our interns, who helpfully pointed out that this isn't likely a reference here to the land of Israel in the Middle East. Rather, this is looking ahead to the eternal promised land, the, the city that according to Hebrews 11 verse 10 has foundations whose architect and builder is God himself. It's the promised land to come, the fulfillment of God dwelling with his people in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's because for David, this psalm looks ahead to the Redeemer who would save Israel. 
Brothers and sisters, David was waiting on the promised Messiah, but that wait ended with the arrival of Jesus Christ, who lived without sin, who died as a substitute in our place for the sin of all who believe and trust in him. You see, Jesus' life and death and resurrection are the basis by which we will never be put to shame even as we wait on the promises of God. You want to know why? Because in the arrival of Jesus Christ, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, God fulfilled over 2,000 years of promises to his people at that time. And as Jesus bled and died on the cross, Scripture says he took on himself our shame. He bore our shame in our place, in his body on the tree, on the cross. And by his wounds we are healed. And that is the first fruits, the groundwork, the foundation of our confidence that when we cry out to him, even in suffering, even as we wait on his promises, we know that God will make good. We know that he who promised is faithful. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's pray.